And St. Paul says for us today, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We have now heard what we must do and believe, in what things the best and happiest life consists. Luther began the Lord's Prayer in the large catechism. Now, he says, follows the third part, how we ought to pray. And here is one of the ways that Lutheran theology is most grandly seen in the wider world, that Luther's catechism was organized according to the life of a Christian. And so, as we saw, the first thing that needs to be revealed with the commandments is not simply what we must do, but finally revealing the heart of why we need that God that is then revealed in the Apostles' Creed. And once we understand that Christ alone saves us and, bring, and the Holy Spirit brings us our faith, so now, Luther says, we need to know how and why we are to call out to our creating, saving, and sanctifying God. Because that is what prayer is. It's nothing more than word in faith. Or faith in word, excuse me, faith in words. That prayer, as Lutheran theologian Dennis Nygan says, is a practical way of performing the first commandment. That it is calling out to God and asking to hear God's word and the faith to believe it. Jim Nestigan, now my deceased seminary professor, once wrote. And Luther says that prayer is that, acknowledges, prayer is that which acknowledges God and our dependence upon him. That pleases him, he says. It is the most highest, truest, and most precious worship that we can render to him, for it gives him the glory that is due to him. This is why Luther says in the Catechism, there is no nobler prayer to be found on earth than the Lord's Prayer. And we, he says, ought not to surrender this for all the riches of the world. And this helps explain what we looked a bit last Wednesday when we looked at the prayers within our divine service. And there we saw that although our prayers are addressed in a sacrificial orientation, that is, we pray and speak to God, we're looking at the altar where God is found. But the reason we do that is ultimately because of the first sacramental action of our God. That is, that he speaks first to us. And so prayers are simply a response to what God has done for us. Which is why prayers, as we saw last on Wednesday, Jesus saying in Matthew 6, are not a surprise to our God. That what we say are actually the very words our God already knows that we need, and he is placing them there, as Paul says, with the Holy, through and with the Holy Spirit. And so the prayers we offer to our God is the way our God is actually leading us and teaching us to further trust and hope in him alone. And why, even though in a prayer we are lifting our words up to God, we're not simply seeking to manipulate him. We're not conjoling him into working. We're not surprising him what is weighing on our hearts or what we need. But prayer then is the way that we are calling ourselves to place ourselves into, as we already pray in the Lord's Prayer, to seeing his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the Lord's Prayer, 
The very way Jesus taught his church how we are to pray is truly the first and the final prayer of the church. This is why we understand, as we talked again on Wednesday, in the earliest form of the church, the Lord's Prayer was only to be allowed offered by the baptized. And if you were unbaptized, you were dismissed at, the, at a middle point of the service before the sacrament began. And this is true because only those who have been redeemed by God the Son can actually call God the Father. For only those who are united into Christ's death and resurrection become a child of the Father and so can speak to him as such. That's why Carl Schalk speaks of the Lord's Prayer as the church's table prayer. For it is the prayer that God's people are preparing themselves to now receive the Lord. And that's why when we have the sacrament, it's placed right before the words of institution. Now the church no longer holds that practice of dismissing the baptized and not allowing them to pray. However, such an idea actually helps us to see how prayer is nothing more or less than the language of our faith. For we do not only need know how to pray, but we also need the command to pray. Because our sinful desires will seek nothing other than ourselves. This is why there's so many excuses of why we don't pray enough. Well, I'm not good enough to come to God. My, my needs aren't that great. There are other people worse off than I, we might say. That's actually our sinful nature, trying to resist opening ourselves up to God. And so why, this is why Luther says, by our praying, we are actually instructing ourselves more than we are God. And that's what we saw with the third article. As we only become the church through the outward work, the extra nose of the Holy Spirit, working through the word and the sacraments to call, gather, enlighten, and keep us in this communion of saints, so we see how prayer is connected to the second commandment then. That it is only here that we actually, as we get the name of our God, are only able now to use his name rightly. And Luther says, when is that done? in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. And so as we begin our study today of the Lord's Prayer, before we go to the introduction, the Our Father, we, I want to first start with the first petition, Hallowed be thy name. Because we have to understand why we and how we hallow God's name before we could ever understand why we would call upon this God and Father. And so Luther says in the Catechism, that God's name is already holy in itself. We don't do anything to make it holy. But whenever we say this, hallowed be thy name, we're actually telling ourselves to make it holy amongst us. And this is needed because the church lives in this fallen world. That we will often be led astray, if we're not careful, by false ideas and wrong thinking. St. John, in his first epistle, is doing that, you see. For he's addressing a teaching we believe that was an early, an early form of Gnosticism, taught by a man named Serinthus. And his idea was that idea of adoptionism we kind of spoke on during the second article, where the adoptionism says is that Christ the Son 
adopted or came down, kind of like possessing a man who happened to be named Jesus at baptism. And then he left before he died, so God the Spirit, God the Son's Spirit, whatever you want to say, remained untainted. But John is saying, if you deny Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, you deny not only the sacramental promises of the church, but you also misuse the name of God. Because you are saying that this man, Jesus, was not the Son of God, but only the Christ, whatever that means. That's why it's Gnostic, you see. And so John here had to emphasize both the history of Christmas and the Passion. So to remind us that we only hold the name of God holy when we believe where God gives himself to us. And that is in the person, first and foremost, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we do not believe that, we make God into a liar, he says. Because we don't believe in the testimony, in the word that God gives to us. And so as Jesus himself says, if you deny him, you deny the Father. So if you you do not accept Jesus as your Savior, you are denying God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit, of course, comes along with it and you desecrate him too. And so Luther in the Catechism reminds us that when we want to hollow God's name, when we want to keep God's name holy among us, it's done where God gives himself to us so that we can grasp him, so that we can believe in him. It's where we hear him speaking to us. And that's in the word of God, in this church that he has created through the Spirit. God's name, he says, is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it. And so we see we keep his name holy when we receive and believe it according to how it is given to us. And that is in Scripture. And then, of course, by extension. That will lead us into leading holy lives because when the holiness of the word enters into your ear, in that parable Jesus says, a good tree will emerge from the good seed that has been planted in you. Thus, everything about God's name being holy among us is when we use it right as it has been rightly given to us. And that is through the word, seeing and believing in the work of salvation. Knowing that it is, and and living out from and according to the holiness it comes, uh, it already has with it as it comes. And we do that when we use God's name in our, and for our prayers. We do so when we use his name in our thanksgiving, when our, in our praise. Reminding ourselves that everything we receive, both the good and the bad, are to be received thusly. It's what what St. Job once says. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. What's the rest of the passage? Blessed be the name of the Lord. As he said again to his wife, should we expect good and not bad from God at times? No, he says. And so this is where Luther then leads us into the introduction. 
That as we call our God our Father, we do so knowing of how and, and where he works to us most explicitly as our Father. And, not, and that's not simply in the creation of all things and the giving of the daily bread, but in this fact of salvation that has now allowed us to come unto him, to be made his very own. And that happens through the Son. John 14, verse 6, Jesus and then and that takes place for those who have died and been raised in the Christ's death and resurrection by baptism, Romans 6, 4. And thus you see, as we have been made in the work of the church, God's own children, we now keep his name holy when we speak and come to him, as Luther says, with all boldness and confidence as children ask their father. That's why Luther express, explicitly says in the large catechism that God not only wants our prayers, but he demands our prayers. Quote, we must know that God will not have our prayer treated as a joke, but he will be angry and punish all who do not pray just as surely as he punishes all other disobedience. That's what Paul is getting at today when he calls upon the Thessalonians to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And if we don't do that, then that's how we quench the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit's job is to bring Christ to you. And so as we already said, it's sin. It's sin that keeps us from calling out to God treating him as though he is our dear father. Because sin is the refusal to have this God as my God. Sin is the refusal to rely on him totally for everything in this life and the next. And so as we sang in the hymn, we are children of the heavenly father, all through the work of Christ for you. And it is because of this, as Jesus says now in Matthew chapter 7, and by the way, these are commands that indicate a future action that you are now to ask, you are to seek, you are to knock as a child would ask, seek, and knock from their own parents. And so prayer is not to be timid, you see. It's not thought that you're using it to hedge your bets. You're not trying to manipulate God. Nor is prayer to be kept from God as though you're not worthy to come before him. When you are a sinner, which you always are, that's when you pray. It's like when you come to the supper. Who needs the Lord's Supper? It's the sinful who need the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper gives us the forgiveness of your sins. And so prayer is the way that we keep God's name holy because we are teaching ourselves, we are forcing ourselves sometimes to reach and call out to God for and with everything we have. Not that we will always receive what we ask. That is the hidden will and majesty of our triune God. Though he giveth or ten taketh away, we just sang. But we must be bold in telling him what we need. And of course, what we need is different than often what we want. And God has promised to respond to your words. He will give you, first of all, all that you need for this life that you hold today. 
And you know he will do that because he has already, in his death and resurrection, given you what you need for your life to come. That's why Luther warns in the first petition, anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. In other words, if you do not use his name for prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, you are actually profaning the name of God. And that's not living as he wishes you to live. For God wants you to cry out to him with what you are in need of. And so you have the summons. You have a command from your father to cry out, to call out to him with all and everything that you hold on your heart. Your prayers are not to be weak because you do not have a weak God. But the God, you have a God who moved earth itself in order to walk out on the other side of death so that you not, might have the promise of life and salvation and it abundant. And so you can cry out to God. You can yell out to God. You can reach out to him with everything you got. Go read the Psalms if you wanted examples of how to pray. You can even get mad at God for not giving you or seeing you through what you need. God can handle such things. In fact, he he would rather have you call out to him in anger than not call out to him at all. Because at least in anger, you're believing that there is a God out there who could and can do something. And this is why hallowing, you see, is connected to your hearing and trusting him in his word. For his word brings forth the holy and greatness of your God so that you might learn to look and expect from him that which is, that which you are, which is bearing you under deep in the depths of despair, worry, and want. Thus faith lives upon knowing that the Father will respond and provide, even if it's not according to your thoughts and ideas. As God says in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. But he will respond to his good and gracious measure. That's what Luther said in the first article, that everything the Father does for you is out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy. And so faith lives simply and wholly upon knowing that whatever God, our God does is for his glory. And even when our cries seem to go unheard, it isn't the absence of God's mercy. It may not just be his desire to give it to you at this time. I know that's tough. I know that's not easy to believe when you're in the midst of the shadowed valley. But as David reminds, he is there, leading us through. For, and, and, and remember how he revealed it to Paul. My grace, he said, is perfect in strength? No. In victory? No. But in weakness. For God's strength was first and most, seen, and most perfectly seen in the weakness of Christ on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And so sometimes when God does not answer what we ask him for, he may be using your faith as a confession, as a confession to yourself that you learn to hope in him, 
As a confession to the world that you show that you have a greater thing than yourself? Maybe he's using it to refine you. To get you to be, in, in, in whatever he's doing, he's doing it to help you in your faith in him. So that as you know, go forth, you can believe that he hears you in what you ask. And so you reach out to him in confidence, knowing that because you have the eternal life in the work of the Son, Jesus is true when he says it is the will of your Father who is in heaven to give good things to those who ask him. And prayer is nothing but asking. So call out, cry out, look to God and hallow his name by believing that this God, your heavenly Father, is your good God, is the God who has saved and redeemed you and will see you through no matter what, whether that's today or through tomorrow. And so now the peace of this God, which surpasses all of our understanding, may that peace keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus now. Amen.